Hi folks, this is episode 43 of DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. My name is Drew Ray. I'm a lecturer at Griffith University in Brisbane, Australia, specialising in safety. Just for a while, based on our discussion in episode 42, I'm going to try not putting out any more conditions on that. I'm not going to say I'm a system safety engineer, I'm just going to say I specialise in safety. I care about making things safe. Things have been a little erratic recently, and I apologise for that. But as of this episode, the next few episodes should come out on a regular schedule. Those of you who've been listening to the podcast for a while know that I'm quite interested in the epistemology of safety. Epistemology is just a fancy way of wondering how we know the things that we think we know. I skew towards being a fairly hard empiricist. I believe that there is an objective real world, even if we can only view it through the distorted and foggy lens of our own theories and imperfect research methods. For me, that goes hand in hand with believing that there are some ways of doing safety that are objectively better than other ways, and I want to work out what those ways are through real-world research. I don't want to just sit in an office and think hard and tell people what I think are better ways of doing things. I'd like to mention some fellow travellers along this path. The first three are John McDermott, Rob Alexander and Mark Nicholson. If you look at my published work, you'll see those three names cropping up in various combinations as co-authors. That's not surprising, because we've been sitting in the same place for the past few years. They all have interests of their own. John was one of the guiding minds behind the safety case approach to safety assurance. Mark is an expert in data safety. And Rob is into automated systems and software testing with a sideline in safety. But working with them has been the foundation of my current understanding of safety as a science. The next two people to mention are George Despoto and Ibrahim Hubley. When I appear as a co-author with them, it's usually because they've done most of the work. They keep me honest. Long-time listeners will remember them from appearances on DisasterCast, particularly talking about software in safety. Three more people to mention here are Chris Johnson, Michael Holloway, and Patrick Graydon. You'll have heard ideas from each of these three appear in the podcast at various times, even when I don't name-check them specifically. Just as people such as Sidney Decker and Eric Holnagel shape the social constructionist end of the idea landscape I work in, Chris, Michael and Patrick remind me constantly that there are things that can be learned by being in the real world and studying it as rigorously as possible. A good example of this is a workshop that Patrick and Michael ran a few months ago called Planning the Unplanned Experiment. They were pointing out that we judge the safety of software by comparing it to development standards. But how do we judge the safety of the development standards? How do we know if they're any good at all? They were fighting back against the idea, implied by a lot of what goes on in both academia and industry, that you can determine the quality of a standard by arguing about it. Now, there are things that are legitimately value-laden and philosophical questions. And these things admit debate. But there are also other things that are questions of empirical fact. And the only way to resolve those is by testing them in the real world, dammit. Patrick sometimes puts me to shame with his confidence 
that an experimental approach to safety is feasible, despite the way that research currently tends to be funded. He's also the first Patreon patron of DisasterCast. So thank you, Patrick. And just in case the rest of you are wondering, yes, a mention on the show and a sincere thank you can be bought simply by donating money. I'll happily praise the spirit, generosity, and general awesomeness of anyone who sponsors, rates, cites, reviews, or publicizes the show. Recognition for scientific integrity, on the other hand, is unpurchasable, but equally sincere. Now, why am I talking about all of these people anyway? This is a podcast which mixes together discussion of accidents, summaries of safety research, and advocacy about the practice of safety. I want to be as transparent as possible about the fact that these three things can't be neatly separated. Mostly I'm telling you stories. I hope that you find them entertaining and that you learn something from them. I hope some of what you learn is different from what I'm trying to teach, because I sure as heck don't have all the answers. There is an objective world. Some ways of doing safety are better than others, and I wish I knew which ones. If you're confident that you know the right way, then please take that confidence and go find a job that doesn't play with people's lives. The one thing I can say with absolute certainty about safety is that it should be practiced with intellectual humility. Having said that, let's blow some things up. Before modern steam reforming took hold, Industrial hydrogen used to be produced by electrolysis. In theory, you can just run electricity through water to split it into hydrogen and oxygen. In practice, pure water is a pretty poor conductor of electricity, so you need to contaminate it. Liquids that have been deliberately chosen to run electricity through are called electrolytes. One type of 1970s era hydrogen production plant consisted of hundreds of cells stacked on top of each other. These cells were around a metre and a half in diameter, but only a couple of centimetres thick. Each cell was like a reverse battery. You put electricity in instead of taking it out. They were filled with high concentration potassium hydroxide, which is actually the same stuff you get in alkaline batteries. It's also a great cleaning product, so long as whatever you're cleaning can resist corrosion. Don't try that at home, by the way. Humans are one of the many things that potassium hydroxide is very good at dissolving. Manufacturing hydrogen by electrolysis is somewhat risky because you get oxygen at the same time. Pure oxygen and pure hydrogen are flammable but not explosive. There's a cool experiment we did in high school science class, where you collect hydrogen in an upside-down test tube and you set it alight. A ring of flame slowly travels up the tube, it looks really cool. If you try that with the right mixture of oxygen and hydrogen though, you want to be wearing your safety glasses. Hydrogen and oxygen mixtures are often explosive. That's what liquid rocket fuel is made of. A chemical company called Howards of Ilford, unsurprisingly located at Ilford, Essex. We're using hydrogen in a number of different industrial processes. They worked out that it made economic sense for them to generate their own hydrogen. So in 1962, they bought a machine of the type I described from a German company called Lurgi Gesellschaft. 
The unit was supervised by one operator during each 12-hour shift. In the early hours of 2nd of April 1975, quite a few years later, this operator heard a series of cracking noises from within the machine. He turned down the voltage and the noises went away. When he turned the voltage back up again a few hours later, the noise didn't come back. So, all fine and good. Later that day, though, with a new operator on duty, there was a big leak and a loss of pressure. The unit was shut down and the German makers, Logi, were asked to send someone to take a look. They sent someone right away who repaired the leak. Now, don't get the impression that these were cowboys. The plant management was quite careful. They didn't just get someone to fix the leak. They also slowly brought the unit back to normal pressure, under constant observation to test that the repair had done properly and was holding. And even once they were sure that the leak had stopped, they still made sure that all of the operators knew what had happened. They even installed a special light so it was easy for the operators to observe the area where the leak had occurred, and they warned the operators to pay special attention, and gave them permission to shut the whole plant down if they had any further concerns. The foreman, the guy who supervises the operators, adjusted his own schedule so that he was spending a fair bit of time alongside the operator in the hydrogen unit, just making sure everything was back to normal. So, lots and lots of sensible precautions. In the middle of the morning, on April 5th, the oxygen drum on this plant exploded. The operator on duty was immediately covered in caustic solution. He screamed for help, was helped away from the building by the foreman, the factory rescue team rushed him to the emergency showers, then took him to the hospital, where he died. The foreman, a rescue worker, and a lorry driver who also happened to be passing by all suffered pretty severe burns. It turned out that the leak that everyone was being so careful about was a symptom, not the actual problem. Blockage in one or more of the hydrogen production cells was causing the hydrogen and oxygen to mix. The cracking noises were actually caused by small explosions, which caused the leak. Once the leak was fixed, the hydrogen and the oxygen were still mixing. And even the drums, which contained large quantities of supposedly pure gas, now held a dangerous mixture. So it was just a time bomb waiting to go off while everyone was sitting watching it carefully. One of the reasons it wasn't noticed was the way data was collected at the plant. They were producing hydrogen for use in their other chemical processes. It was important that the hydrogen was very, very pure. They didn't actually care about the oxygen they were making at the same time, it was just a waste product. So while they carefully measured the hydrogen, they weren't really bothered about the purity of the oxygen. Why bother about making sure your waste product is very, very pure? Well, okay. Maybe if your waste product is pure oxygen and the contaminant is pure hydrogen, maybe you should be worried about the relative concentrations of the two. But no one really explained this to the operators. The standard instruction manual had warnings to check the purity levels, but no expl explanation why you had to check them. It was quite reasonable for the operators to think, well, the instructions say to check the purity levels regularly, but hydrogen purity matters and oxygen purity doesn't matter, so we'll focus on the hydrogen. 
It isn't that no one was recording the readings at all, it's more that they were making the numbers up entirely. The investigators could work this out in hindsight, because process purity goes up and down with the voltage levels. When you increase the voltage, the oxygen becomes more pure, and that's what the numbers showed. But the logbooks showed an immediate change every time the voltage was reduced or increased, whereas in reality it takes several hours for the purity to go up and down. So the numbers in the logbook were way too consistent given these processes, and even too consistent given the accuracy of the instruments. The investigators concluded that an hourly manual test of the purity was simply the wrong sort of safeguard. Rather than provide a sensor, a dial, a logbook, and a procedure, why not just hit the sensor straight into an emergency release valve? If they were going to rely on a procedure instead, then they needed to carefully explain to the operators what to look for and why they were looking for it. This is one of those cases where the accident involved a misdirected concern for safety. It's not that no one cared, but after careful warnings, the operators were looking for liquid leaks, and probably paying even less attention than usual to the oxygen purity, as it fell below the critical level for a hydrogen-oxygen explosion. A blast furnace is essentially a large tower. Raw materials are poured in from the top, and extremely hot air is shot in from all sides, resulting in a molten pool at the bottom of the furnace. The waste material, or slag, floats on top of the pool of pure iron. Separate spouts, called notches, are used to drain off the slag and the iron in different directions. You can increase or decrease the amount of blast air coming into the furnace, but there isn't really an off switch. The furnace runs day and night for years, pretty much until the lining starts to wear out, and then the whole thing is blown down and rebuilt. Being blown down isn't as dramatic as it sounds, by the way. Think of it as the calm opposite of blowing something up. Blowing up, bad. Blowing down, good. The challenge in blasting air, hot enough to melt iron, is that it's hot enough to melt the equipment you're using to blast it with. On the outsides of the blowpipes which convey the hot air, there are other pipes which carry cooling water to stop the air pipes deforming or melting. That's roughly how a blast furnace works. The British Steel Corporation had a complex at Scunthorpe. It was known as the Appleby Frodingham Works. It sounds like the most British thing you can possibly imagine. Men in boiler suits were servicing massive furnaces with names like Queen Anne and Queen Victoria, from walkways with names like Prospect Avenue. They were taking breaks for tea and sandwiches in between stoking these massive, hot industrial machines. 1975 was not a good year for Queen Victoria. She had suffered from a recession, a labour dispute, a minor explosion, and internal water leaks. Early on the morning of 4th of November 1975, two ladles were being filled from the furnace. Ladles are big containers for taking molten iron from the furnaces across to the rest of the works. Due to their shape, they're called torpedoes, which is a little ominous given what's about to happen. The plant manager looked out of his control room 
and he saw one of the furnace keepers spraying water onto the blowpipe. The blowpipe had developed a hole and the standard procedure was to focus a jet of water onto the leak. The water slowed down the hole formation, giving them time to reduce the air pressure and then eventually replace the pipe. It wasn't particularly unusual for this sort of thing to happen. Often bits of molten metal from the furnace would come back up into the pipes causing this sort of damage. This was a bigger, quicker hole than usual, because it wasn't due to molten metal, it was because the cooling system had sprung a leak. Each cooling pipe needed two holes to pump water in and water out. The manufacturer made them with up to eight holes, and it, the manufacturer fitted brass blanking plugs to all but two of them. That way when you got the pipe you could move the plugs around and fit the pipes in lots of different positions, using whichever two holes were most convenient. You couldn't just take the brass plugs out and put them back in somewhere else though, because they usually got damaged pulling them out. Instead, the works kept a stock of steel replacement plugs. Now, do you know what happens when you put steel plugs into copper pipes? Well, good on you, because apparently you know something that manufacturers for British Steel Corporation operating iron smelting blast furnaces at a steelworks, didn't know about the basic properties of iron and steel. If you put two metals with different electrode potential into contact with another, ions move from one to the other, and the one missing the ions corrodes pretty quickly. It's a phenomenon that's been known for a long time, due to problems like copper sheeting falling off the bottom of boats when it's attached by iron nails and aluminium foil ruining salty food when you cover it inside a steel pan. The cooling system was losing water, and the problem wasn't so much the loss of water from the cooling system as where this water was going. The area was set up with a nice downhill slope so that the molten iron could run down into the torpedoes, and all of this water started to run down that way too. Normally the workers would build improvised dams to re-channel the leaking water, but they couldn't even get close enough due to the heat coming out of the damaged blowpipe. The water ran down into the molten iron channels and onwards into the top of a torpedo that had just been filled with molten iron. Still, not so bad yet. Everyone involved knew that adding molten iron to water was a really bad idea. In their experience, though, going the other way round, adding water to molten iron wasn't so bad. The iron might form a bit of a crust, which was bad for production, but the water would just boil off in a cloud of steam. The site manager had summoned a locomotive to haul the full torpedo out of the way of the water. And again, this was to avoid it getting crusty, not because he thought it was actually dangerous. There was a bump as the locomotive connected up to the ladle. There was another bump as it rocked forward to remove the back chocks, and a third bump as it rocked backward to remove the front chocks. These bumps stirred the water, molten iron and steam, inside the torpedo. So, effectively we'd gone from water sitting on top to a lovely and not so lovely mixture. Kaboom. Ninety tons of metal exploded upwards. And then the molten metal and the remains of the roof rained downwards. The one and a half ton spout of the torpedo ladle 
was later found on the roof of a nearby building. There were four immediate fatalities in this explosion and 15 hospitalised injuries, of whom seven later died. One of the reasons for the low survival rate was that it took half an hour for ambulances to arrive from off-site to take the wounded away. Here's a quote from the accident report. There were no internal written and coordinated procedures to cope with the disaster situation. Manager Production Services said of the document that had been in preparation for many months and had reached the final draft stage. Hmm. Some of the workers had burns that would have been prevented with better protective gear. Whether staff were wearing protective clothing or not kind of depended on which union they belonged to. Some unions had agreements for free protective clothing, some had agreements for discounted gear, and in some unions staff had to pay for their own protection. Part of the problem was that management insisted that whenever they paid for the gear, there had to also be a clause punishing staff for not wearing it. Some unions were understandably resisting this clause, so they hadn't come to an agreement with management, no protective gear. Way to protect your own workers, guys. On both sides, the unions and the management. You won't pay for their shoes unless they're willing to be fined for not wearing the shoes you pay for. All for their own good, right? Uh, no. Let's fast forward out of the 70s. Way too dangerous a time. The 80s cured all of that by removing both those fussy unions and all the manufacturing that was creating the risk. Let's travel instead to 1992, in the picturesque West Yorkshire town of Bradford. Nothing is being manufactured in 1992 at Alloyed Colloids Limited Warehouse. It's on the middle of a site that's doing some manufacturing, but the warehouse itself is just storing stuff. In the middle of a sleepy July afternoon, a series of explosions triggered an intense fire, injuring 33 members of the public. Wait, what? Rewind. Rewind. Up on the top shelf of the warehouse, there were some containers of azodiisobutyronitrile. Let's just call it AZDN, please. AZDN is unstable if it gets hot, and it starts a chain reaction at 50 degrees Celsius. So you don't want to store it next to, say, a steam condensate pipe. Got that? Don't put the unstable chemical with the unpronounceable name next to the hot pipe. Also, don't put it near any oxidising chemicals. So, say you've got a bunch of containers of sodium persulfate. Don't put them next to the AZDN, which you have not just put next to a hot pipe. Actually, I'm being a little bit unfair to alloyed colloids here. They didn't put oxidising chemicals next to the AZDN. They put the AZDN inside the storeroom, especially set aside to keep oxidising chemicals that need to be kept warm away from everything else. Like the AZDN. The planning for the warehouse in question was done by an administrator without consulting any of the engineering or safety staff. His starting drawings were just one big shed filled with chemicals. 
The safety department was consulted at the very last minute and some late changes were made. That's why there were separate storerooms for the oxidising materials in the first place. A lot of the safety recommendations made at that time weren't adopted though, and we don't have good reasons for how those decisions were made. Um, just the records weren't kept so we don't know. The AZDN was stored in the oxidising place from the very start, and the manufacturer's datasheet recommends fire sprinklers but none were fitted. In 1989, the warehouse manager prepared a segregation table, saying which things needed to be kept away from which other things, and he submitted it to the safety department for comments. Amongst other mistakes, it listed AZDN, this thing that needs to be kept away from oxidising agents, as an oxidising agent. Now, no one paid a lot of attention to this documentation anyway. New chemicals were just placed alongside old ones of the same type in the warehouses. In 1991, the warehouse was rearranged because the balance of material had shifted. They had more of some things and less than other things. A member of the safety department visited and he let the warehouse manager know that they needed to comply with HSE guidance for storing chemicals. The manager prepared an internal works order, asking for things like flame-proof lighting, temperature monitoring equipment, smoke detectors, and, significantly, disconnection of the heater in the storeroom. The only work that was actually done was an electrician wandered past and turned the thermostat down to zero. On 12th of February 1992, the HSE published new guidance on chemical storage. The in-house documents weren't updated, but remember, no one's actually reading these documents anyway. Not even the manager or the senior foreman actually knew that the company had documentation saying which chemicals needed to be kept separately. Around that same time, the site environmental manager did a survey, and they noticed some of the co-location problems. The survey report was called Improving the Environmental Safety of Drum Storage, and it included separating the AZDN from the oxidising chemicals. This was kind of at odds with earlier health and safety inspections which hadn't even found any problems, and these early reports had actually commented positively on the segregation of dangerous chemicals. Something going on there, but we don't quite know what. On the morning of 21st of July 1992, a forklift had been in the storeroom, and it left wet tyre tracks throughout the warehouse. The person in charge asked for hot blowers to be turned on to remove the moisture. And it's possible that it's at this time that the storeroom heating got turned back on again by mistake. The AZDN kegs got hot and ruptured, which sent a cloud of powder through the room. Once this had mixed with some spilled persulfate, it was ready to be ignited by any small amount of impact energy. One of the truck operators noticed the dust. He actually thought it was smoke and he sounded the fire alarm. The internal fire, fire team rolled out along with some of the senior managers. They were all just sort of standing around inspecting and once it was clear that it was dust rather than fire, they pulled up the materials datasheet, phoned the manufacturer and decided that the best thing to do was to vacuum it up rather than using water. While they were getting the equipment together to do this, the shift chemist was occasionally popping his head into the room, and he, on one of these visits he heard a loud hissing noise. A plume of smoke 
definitely smoke this time, was coming out of one of the other bags of chemicals. He turned to quickly grab a hose, but just as he did this, there was a three-metre jet of flame and an explosion. The chemist was knocked over by the blast, and by the time he was on his feet and looked around, everyone was running. Now, don't blame them for running. If I tell you that hundreds of steels and plastic drums were destroyed, and a few of them became projectiles during the fire, that's a quote from the report, you'll hopefully understand why they were fleeing as fast as they could. The storeroom was normally protected by inner and outer roller doors, but they were both open at the time of the blast, and there was no emergency system for closing them. The spread of flames was helped by chemical dust on the ledges and wall tops, and because sprinklers had never been installed. The warehouse walls weren't properly keyed into the support pillars, so given enough fire and explosion, they just collapsed outwards, letting the fire spread into an adjoining bay full of drums of flammable materials. There was even a parked lorry filled with drums of acetate just to help the fire onwards. The word imagery of the report of this is great. It describes a slow-moving, flaming river of molten chemicals. So we've got big fire, walls falling outwards, molten river on fire, and drums occasionally just exploding and flying into the air. It's kind of like the set of a disaster movie. Everyone on site was evacuated, and relatively smoothly too. They had to cut through a few of the security fences to get people out, but it sounds like that was more of just an excess of caution. No one was trapped, they were just being careful they didn't lead evacuated staff back through dangerous areas. The two biggest problems were the lack of water and failing to sound the emergency siren. There was a bit of an ongoing argument between the company and the fire department, and it was known to both of them that there just wasn't enough water available to fight a large fire on site. The company also refused to sound the siren at first, and when they did turn the siren on, it got cut off again when the power failed. At least one of the victims was a resident who was badly affected by smoke that he inhaled before the warning siren came on and prompted his mother to close the windows. Allied colloids made a public statement, while the smoke was still pouring out, that the smoke was non-toxic. That's right, a burning cocktail of over 400 chemicals, and the company that didn't manage to store them properly assured everyone that they were sure that they were safe. Tell that to the police officer directing traffic downwind of the incident who was badly ill for months afterwards and didn't make a complete recovery. Tell that to the residents noticing clear sticky deposits everywhere and soot particles in their vegetable gardens, wondering if they're safe to eat and if they can trust the company. Tell that to the people living along Spen Beck and the River Calder as they collected all the dead fish. The National Rivers Authority didn't consider the number of dead fish particularly high compared to the length of river affected because, quote, the initial water quality was not high. So, in other words, it wasn't a huge natural disaster because the water was already pretty badly polluted. But they had been working hard for years to restore the local waterways, and this seriously set them back. If nothing else, the report takes pains to point out that the local hog water lice and leeches were either killed or started behaving strangely. 
Won't someone please think of the hogwater lice? If I sound a little bit less forgiving than usual, it may be because this was a company that had decided that safety just wasn't relevant for their logistics division. Of 125 employees responsible for logistics, which at a chemical company means the handling and storage of dangerous substances, none of them were qualified in safety or chemistry. The total extent of the management safety training was one person attending a quarter-day course, which was more of just a policy rollout. New staff were given induction training, but about half of it was just job terms and conditions, and just a bit of general health and safety, you know, showing people videos of people getting hurt. Jumping up to director level, the chair of the board safety group was dead, and his successor was on long-term sick leave. The company's safety policy predated the existence of the logistics department. A new safety policy had been written, but no one had got round to rolling it out because they wanted to schedule a nice big launch event, and they just hadn't had an opportunity for the launch event, so no updated policy. And it didn't have the logistics department or the logistics director anywhere on it anyway. Now, just in case you think it was just logistics that was the problem, no director or manager outside the safety department anywhere had performance objectives relating to safety. I've said it before, but it's worth saying again. Safety is not the responsibility of the safety department. They're a resource to put systems in place, to gather and share information, and to help people notice things that they might have overlooked. But the responsibility for danger comes from the people who are controlling that danger. This was not an accident that could have been prevented by the safety department. Even if the written procedures had been carefully implemented and carefully audited, they classified the AZDN into exactly the same category of chemicals as the chemicals that it needed to be kept away from. That's the sort of thing that needs subject matter experts to recognise, not safety experts. Well, that's it for this episode of DisasterCast. I don't have anything particularly insightful to say about those three explosions, but I hope you found them interesting. Thank you to Patrick and John, the first two DisasterCast patrons. Thank you, thank you, thank you to both of you. Thank you also to Ujeroen and BG1, the two Netherlands listeners who've reviewed the show. Based on listener numbers, that's actually pretty good. It's a tight race between Netherlands and Canada who is the most polite in rating and leaving reviews. So thank you to people from both countries. Spear Havoc and Safety Dance 2014, by the way, are leading the Canadian campaign for politeness. If you've listened to every episode of DisasterCast so far, and you haven't yet supported the show with fake praise or real currency, you can go to disastercast.co.uk or to patreon.com slash disastercast. One glowing review or one dollar an episode will ease your guilt and make me feel happy. Thanks for listening, and keep safe.